I'm Randy, the pastor half of the podcast, and my friend Kyle is a philosopher. This podcast hosts conversations at the intersection of philosophy, theology, and spirituality. We also invite experts to join us, making public a space that we've often enjoyed off-air around the proverbial table with a good drink in the back corner of a dark pub. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to A Pastor and a Philosopher Walk Into a Bar. So around here, we do tastings of delicious alcoholic beverages because we are a pastor and a philosopher walking to a bar. So Kyle, tell us what we're drinking today. Yeah, so this was a gift to my wife after the birth of our first child. (laughs) And and I got her permission to share it with you. So she loves her favorite kind of whiskey is Isla Scotch. The more heavily peated, the better. The more smoke, the better. She loves it. Um, and so there's a, a place, a little town called Bowmore that has a distillery called Bowmore right on the sea. It's gorgeous. You can stay there. You can tour. We did all that. It was fantastic. Sounds amazing. And this is their 18-year offering. Mm. Uh, a little bit special and uh, I think delicious, but you, you got to like the peat. So oh, dude, the peat I like to spring right that on you every there. now and then. Yeah, It's so smoky. I have trouble separating that much smoke from the idea of smoked meat like that's what mm-hmm. i get when yeah, i yeah. smell in this it's not smoke meat. it's just it's, a, it's just the association like you don't smell that much smoke normally without it being attached to some meat it's smoke it's so much leather yeah like, this is a good one for discerning the difference between smoke and peat though because mm-hmm. the smoke is definitely present but i get more of that seaweed kind of mm-hmm. smell yeah it's mm-hmm. it's briny at the same time it's yeah. got this savory component to it wow but it's got enough age on it Oak barrels, you know, so there's going to be some dark fruits, maybe some chocolate on the palate. We'll see. Yeah, the chocolate ring's true. Can we just be an 18-year scotch tasting podcast here? (laughs) Yeah. 18 is like, 18 is, maybe 15 is the number. I don't know. Like, past which it becomes really interesting. Mm -hmm. This is interesting. I mean, it's way more subtle. It's less of a punch in the face than I was expecting is what I'm Mm -hmm. trying to say. It's... It's almost light. It seems like a, a lower cut to me, mm-hmm. which I like because that peatiness almost needs a little something to lay back on. It's like it, you you get that smoky, briny sea thing at the beginning, but then it just mellows out into a really good glass of whiskey. Yeah. 43%. So it's powerful, but not in the ethanol sense. It's Mm-mm. just powerful in flavor. No, there is a little bit of a creosote. Like it's it's got a little bit of a burnt Mm-hmm. taste and which i know is just the i mean that's the peatiness but it's really yep. good yeah it's great it's hitting me right they very generously when i was doing their tasting at the distillery the person leading it pulled out their i think 25 year which normally they don't do but we asked and <laughs> they were kind and bottle we couldn't have afforded one of the best scotches wow. i tasted while we were over there yeah this is just I, I i'm trying to get used to the peats like i'm, I'm not gonna lie and tell you that i absolutely mm-hmm. love it but I appreciate it because it's it's so different than bourbon, right? Yeah. Like you can you can drink a Highland Scotch, is it? This is an Isla. Yeah. So Isla, Isla, and then a what? What's the Highland would be Highland, a good yeah. contrast, yeah. Which not so peaty, but it still has a lot of bourbon e flavors to it. This mm-hmm. is a, just a completely different product, in my opinion. Yeah, it and is. I appreciate that. Yeah. So one more time, what is this? This is Bowmore eighteen year. Cheers! Thanks for sharing. So on this episode of Pastor and Philosopher Walking to a Bar, we are continuing our conversation with Rob Schenk. This is part two. If you have not heard part one, stop this, go back in our feed, find part one, listen to that first. Yeah, I mean, Rob 
was part of the evangelical conservative political machine. I mean, not even part of. He was one of the movers and shakers. He moved that conversation forward. He had a spot at the table. And as a result of that, and a result of his repentance, of his turning around and walking in a different direction and, and walking towards what I would say is a more Christ-like way, um, we get some really incredible insights into that movement and what it's all about. And this is really, really fascinating conversation. Yeah. Uh, it reminded me in some ways of our conversation with Frank Schaefer. Yes. Um, although... Be, less angry. Be, yeah, much less angry. <laughs> and al- also coming from someone who still identifies as an evangelical. Yes. Right, who is still very much uh, committed to Jesus and to even a kind of evangelical understanding of Jesus. Somebody who is currently committed to the ideals but has seen through how the ideals were applied and is now trying to apply them for real. Yep. Yeah, actually, so I had no, no context like coming into the conversation, mm-hmm. didn't know what, uh, who we were even talking to, didn't recognize the name. Now, though, the level of respect that I have mm-hmm. for Rob is, I would hope to be somebody who, when confronted with new information in the yes. ways that he was, could change my life and turn. And so to Lose have these dramatic even. chapter markings to his life, like most people don't get to have that because they're so embedded. The, the sunk cost is too great. They can't make the change. Uh, it's just too much work. Yep. And there's something about him that, uh, where he seems a bit immune, or at least, or he's done the work. It, it, Tons of integrity. He, he read a lot of Bonhoeffer. This is what happens when you read <laughs> theology and philosophy and uh, <laughs> take it seriously. If you do it right. Changes your right life. Changes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so here's uh, part two with Rob Shank. Abigail Disney comes to you and says, why are you Christians so obsessed with guns? Tell us about you. So you're on the mountaintop. You're in the room, Pat Robinson's 80th birthday. That's the tip of the iceberg as far as the mountaintop that you were on. And then you came crashing down very quickly. Tell us about that descent in, or maybe ascent out of that, that world. Yeah, it was kind of both simultaneously. And what had happened was I took a leave, a kind of leave of absence from my work in 2009. I enrolled in a doctor of ministry program out at my alma mater, Faith Evangelical Seminary in Tacoma, Washington. And it gave me a little distance uh, from what I was doing. And in my work, I wanted to look at what happened to the churches in Germany in the lead up to uh, Nazism and uh, the catastrophe that was Adolf Hitler. And in my research work, this was late in life, I was 50-something when I enrolled in that program. And, you know, it was a little late, but it, but it wasn't too late. And I, as I was looking at what's commonly called the German church struggle, which was its own identity crisis in the shadow of Nazism and the co-optation of the church in Germany, and, and I remind people that the largest body of Christians in Germany were known as the Evangelische Kirche, the Evangelical Church of Germany. And they would eventually fully embrace Adolf Hitler, Nazism, and uh, genocide. And so I was looking at all of that and drawing parallels between what 
I saw happening in my evangelical world in the United States and what happened back then in 1920s and 1930s Germany. And it was shocking and it was deeply disturbing and it was unsettling. And so uh, I came back east uh, a few times during that period and eventually to that party of Pat's. And all of this indicated to me we're in very, very big trouble. And then when Abigail Disney, who, by the way, she's a great filmmaker, but she is, you know, I like to tell people she is not a Disney princess. Yes, she is the grandniece of Walt Disney. She's the granddaughter of Roy Disney, who built the Disney empire. But she is hardly... A, a, a child of un, unconscious privilege. She knows where she, she is in the world and she uses her wealth and her name to do a lot of good. She gives away most of her wealth in philanthropic ways. And one of the things she has done is she has made these award-winning documentaries. And in this case, she wanted to, she had, traveled the country. She talked with evangelical leaders all over the country, asking them if they would simply take a critical look at why white American evangelicals were the religious uh, subgroup in the population most likely to own a firearm, to defend unfettered Second Amendment gun rights, uh, and to believe that uh, using lethal force uh, was was a God given was a, a God directed mandate. So she said, I, "I found a lot of people who questioned that, but they would not go on camera because they were so afraid of a backlash from their financial contributors, from their." constituencies uh, from their allies and friends. And she dared me. She said, you're the last person I'm talking to. And if I don't get, I'm, I'm going to go a completely different direction with the film if you say no. And I took a very long time to give her a yes. And I finally did with all kinds of caveats telling her I wanted out if this went wrong or that went wrong. But once I got into the project and I discovered friends, pastor friends that I had had for decades who were now armed in their pulpits. I remember a, a longtime friend of mine who I preached for routinely as an itinerant evangelist. And he said, Rob, I never go into the pulpit without my nine millimeter. I always have it on me. And I said, David, what, what are you talking about? Why are you doing that? And he said, I'm telling you, somebody comes into my church, stands up in the pew and makes a noise I don't understand. I'm going to take him right out from the sacred desk. And I said, all right, now, David, by that time, I had been through firearms training for the film because I had to get an orientation to my subject. So I had been trained by a professional U.S. Marine Corps firearms instructor. And I said, David, you know that the chances are nine to one, you will not hit your target. 
And that's why you have to fire every round in your magazine because nine out of 10 shots are not going to land where you want them to, which means you're going to kill grandma or her granddaughter in one of your seats in your sanctuary. How will you ever recover from that? And he said, that's the price of freedom, brother. When I heard those things, I realized we're in exactly the same place that the Christians of Germany were in, in the late 1920s, into the 1930s, and would ultimately lead the Evangelical Church of Germany to declare Adolf Hitler, and I quote, this is a, a statement that was read from the pulpits of the Evangelical Churches in Germany when Adolf Hitler rose to the chancellorship in Germany, and it was proclaimed that Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party were gifts and miracles from God sent to return Germany to greatness. So when I saw how we were embracing violence as the Christians of Germany did, I said, uh, we're no different. And that's why I fully invested myself in that project, which you've you guys have obviously seen in the film, The Armor of Light, and I'm very grateful to Abby Disney for challenging me to do that. So, I mean, all of this is just jaw-dropping stuff, but could you give us some numbers as to what happened? How many, what was your budget before the film and you came out anti-gun and what was it after? What was how many followers you had and how what was it after? I mean, those are startling numbers. Yeah, well, you know, at that time I had 50,000 financial donors spread all across the United States. We had hundreds of churches that supported us. We had a large number of what we call mega donors who were giving us millions of dollars. You know, in those years, uh, I had raised 20, 30 million dollars. We had a headquarters building right on Capitol Hill. I had a staff. I'm, I'm ashamed to even say this, but you know, Plenty of times I was tooling around the city in a Cadillac Escalade, you know, executive car service at, you know, $600 a day. Uh, and uh, everybody was flashing their cobalt cards, never mind platinum American Express. That was that was the cheap card. You had to have a cobalt card and the cobalt card you could buy a yacht with or or a jet aircraft with. So people would flash their cobalt cards and, you know, I was flying on Gulfstream jets and all the rest. After that project, everything started um, scaling down very rapidly. People were very angry for me uh, taking on the questioning their God-given right to defend themselves. And that's what I questioned because... The question that Abigail Disney, the, the producer and director of this film, had put to me early on was, how can you claim to be pro-life and pro-gun? Now, I wasn't a big gun aficionado, but I, 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 you know, I accepted it as part of the package, that part of freedom. I bought the line that... If you can't defend yourself, you can't defend your family, you can't defend your community, you can't defend your God-given constitutionally protected rights, um, 
I was suspicious of the federal government, and I bought the line that you needed an armed citizenry in order to check the powers of an overreaching federal government and all the rest of it. So I just kind of accepted it as part of the package. I was never a gun owner. I was never a shooter. But uh, obviously, the people around me were. And I, so I, it, it got me thinking deeply because I had been with national pro-life leaders who kept AR-15 rifles in their trucks and Glock 9mm semi-automatic handguns in their glove compartments. And one national Christian leader told me, I've trained my children to be marksmen. If a federal agent comes up my driveway, one of my kids will take him out at 30 yards. Um, there's a problem with that. Um, call it a keen sense <laughs> of the obvious, but the more I heard this, and I heard worse, once we took on the film project and traveled the country and sat with pastors of rural churches to leaders of multinational organizations and heard the same thing, uh, that the Second Amendment was a God-given right and a moral obligation that Christians had a moral duty to arm themselves. I, I saw it as the ultimate uh, spiritual, moral, and ethical crisis. And I said so, and I was punished. I was punished for that. I was, I was basically exiled, and eventually I would have to leave that entire organization that I had built over those 30 years, um, one financial supporter went with me. One $100 a month donor traveled with me. All the <laughs> rest awesome. That's incredible. was ready to do to me what they wanted to do to Mike Pence, hang me. And they said so. Mm. Oof. Wow. There's a scene in that movie where I knew this was not going to end well for you after the movie. <laughs> and that was, you were sitting around a table in a coffee shop or something yeah. with three other men who ostensibly, I guess, were your friends. That's how it was presented anyway. People you had known for a long time, fellow pastors, ministers of some kind. And just very uh, respectfully and civilly and even hesitantly raised the question to them, how can we is there anything Christian about this gun thing? How can we love Jesus and also love the guns? Help me understand that. And it quickly spiraled out of control, especially for one of the dudes sitting across from you. Mm -hmm. um, if you had if you had that conversation to do over again, would you approach it any differently? Was there any fallout from that? Because <laughs> it, it didn't. I kept hoping for some kind of resolution towards the end of the documentary, and it never came. Uh, I wouldn't do it any differently. That the the main. I guess, protagonist or antagonist, however you want to look at that scene. And by the way, that was a, a real, you know, real life, unrehearsed, first time discussion. No part of that was coached or prompted. It was organic. It emerged out of our time together around a table in a restaurant. And the film crew that Abby Disney, uh, you know, brought to this project they were just consummate professionals. We were unconscious of a of a film crew being in the room. They were so good at their craft, mm. and that was raw, honest uh, exchanges between us. 
oddly, I'm going to tell you that the friendship with the main guy, Troy Newman, who uh, is the head of Operation Rescue, the anti-abortion movement in the country, uh, the guy who quoted the NRA, the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. And you remember in the film, he says, and these are not scripted lines. This just came out of him, you know. Uh, he said, um, an armed society is a polite society. Because you're not going to get in my face if you know, basically, we know. If I'm going to kill you, if I'm going to draw my weapon and fire a bullet into your forehead, you're not going to get in my face. So we're going to treat each other more politely if we know the other is armed. Um, that <laughs> friendship survived. It, it, it's a strange friendship, but we still communicate. We still talk. I think he's supremely wrong. I think uh, what he's promoting is not just damaging, but it's actually responsible for the taking of human life. And that's where it becomes a complete contradiction of a pro-life ethic. Uh, when you claim that you're saving lives on one side of the street, but you're prepared to take them on the other. One thing that my my um, Marine Corps firearms instructor said to me when I took on this training with uh, weapons, he said, unless you can get yourself to a place where you are ready to kill another human being, doesn't matter who they are, even a family member, because the greatest threats in a domestic situation are usually family members. So you have to be ready to kill in an instant, without a second thought, because the moment you hesitate with your weapon, it's going to be taken from you in a violent struggle. It's going to be used to kill you, and it's going to go on to kill others. So you have to be ready. The moment you strap the weapon on your body, you are ready to kill. Which means my friends, ordained ministers mm -hmm. of the gospel, were getting up in the morning, mm -hmm. putting a weapon on their belt, ready to kill even their own family members every day of their lives at church, in the pulpit, in the Sunday school room, in the youth group meeting, uh, at the grocery store, in their living room, in their bedroom. They were ready to kill. So <laughs> all of this, you know, was part of kind of what was coming to the fore, and you kind of see the the crux of it right there at that table in that in that heated exchange that we had, and I put it to many many of my fellows: How can we claim to protect life when, in fact, so many of us get up in the morning and prepare to take life? It's a it's an oxymoron. Yeah. It's it's an internal conflict and crisis, and it has demoralized American evangelicalism to a place where, frankly, I think we are moribund. I think we're on our way to spiritual and social and communal collapse. But I think we're, frankly, doing more damage now than we are good. And that's a terrible, terrible place for us to arrive at. It took that film for me to really see it and feel it. Yeah. 
Can I ask a follow-up to what you were just talking about? Yeah. So I remember I had a, a similar brief but similar firearms training experience with a military professional who trained SWAT teams after his military career and got pretty much the same speech, which makes me think it's standard um, amongst you know actual firearms training experts, which is that you don't wear this, you don't hold this until you have made the decision that anything you pointed at will be destroyed. There are no shooting to wound. There's no warning shot. You're trained to shoot center mass because that's what you're most likely to hit and empty the magazine and you don't call it a clip and you don't hold it like the stupid people in the films. <laughs> like it's, it's everything is about stability and accuracy so that you can maximize the chances of destroying your target. And if you're not willing to do that, you shouldn't own a firearm. Um, and there's this, this thing that a lot of people who are, you know, supposedly in favor of responsible, quote unquote, responsible gun ownership don't realize is that there is a kind of psychological baggage that comes along with that because most people would agree, the people at the table in that scene agreed that responsible gun ownership includes training. And yet the training comes along with this psychological stance, which is, I think you would agree, inherently anti-Christian. <laughs> um, it's the willingness to kill. As our one of our previous guests, Stanley Hauerwas, would put it, um, there is a, there's an element of embracing nationalized violence, or in this case, personalized violence, I guess, that forces you to sacrifice part of your humanity just by being willing to approach other people in that in that way. So I really appreciate you highlighting that aspect that a lot of people don't understand. And so it's, it's really easy to say there's all these sound bites, all these aphorisms about, you know, ways of deflecting the question of why guns are so bad. Um, but to become a responsible owner and user of one, you have to do some damage to your soul. <laughs> and I'm saying this as someone who just got rid of my handgun a couple of months wow. ago. Wow. Okay. Just a couple of months ago. Yeah. Yeah. So I lived with that tension for a long time. Sheesh. Yeah. Wow. We need to have a conversation about that. <laughs> yeah. Good, good. And mostly mostly because I just kind of put it in the basement and forgot about it. And my wife continually reminded me. But finally, you know, I'd been a pacifist for a long time before I was like, I need to actually get rid of this thing. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. And, and it, it, you know, you see part of a, a message I preached on all of this in the film. Um, and, and in that message, I warned that, you know, we have to be careful that in uh, respecting the Second Amendment, we have to be careful that we don't violate the Second Commandment. And the Second Commandment I was thinking of was the second of the ten. You know, you shall not make for yourself a graven image or to bow down to it or to worship it. And I, I will tell you, Kyle, you know, uh, I became a admirer of really nice engineering and uh, tooling of firearms, especially some of the handguns that are really lovely pieces of engineering and machinery and even aesthetically very pleasing. The, the look of them, the feel of them, mm -hmm. they're almost a piece of art. And how strange that, you know, I mean, they are literally graven by human hands and they become an idol mm. because they become a false source of security and safety and even you know when you carry you, you know this feeling i felt it myself uh during those days of training 
you know, when you put a, a Sig Sauer 226 on your belt, you're the most powerful person in the equation, mm-hmm. especially if you have an extended magazine. You're instantly the most powerful person in the room, in, in the collection. And so it gives people a, a false feeling of domination, of superiority, of power over others, the, the power to vanquish somebody if you feel they're a threat or you don't like them, and all the rest of that. So when you talk about diminishing our humanity, I think it also includes diminishing our soul, our, our, our spirit. It most certainly, and I use this word with all the intentional pun, it, it militates against our, our faith, our relationship with God, certainly, you know, living out the, the virtues of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gave us, it's all wrong. It's all contrary. But it has taken over the American church like a fever. I went out to Utah to preach at a church that I was in two, three times a year for 25 years. And the pastor said to me, after the film, after Armor of Light was released, he said to me, just before I, I went into the pulpit to preach, and it was a large church, one of the largest evangelical churches in the state of Utah. And he said, don't say a word about guns this morning. And he knew, I mean, the film was out, it was my subject. And he said, don't, don't even mention it. And I said, Mike, are you kidding? He said, no, I'm not kidding. I said, well, why are you saying that? He said, because I've got 50 people in the first few rows who are heavily armed. And if they don't like what you're saying, I can't guarantee you what they may or may not do. I don't want the trouble. Don't mention the subject. Well, I wish I could tell you that I was a Bunhofer, <laughs> uh, you know, brave guy, and I wasn't. I just left it out of my sermon. I didn't want, uh, you know, I didn't want a firefight to break out in his sanctuary. But so. Um, this is this is a an enormous problem for the church, an enormous problem for Christians, an enormous problem for anyone who claims to follow Jesus Christ. And uh, so, boy, I, I get what you're saying, and you're an authority in a way I, I never have been because you know exactly what that what that feeling is. And, and let's be clear, this is an pr- enormous problem for American Christians. I was interviewed by a conservative Christian in the UK a couple of weeks ago, and he asked me the question, if you could change policy, if you were president in Congress for a day, what would you do? And I was like, easy. I would, you know, outlaw all sorts of guns and, you know, enact gun control policies. And he, again, is a conservative evangelical in the UK, and he, he just looked at a computer screen and was like, yeah, we don't know what you guys are doing over there. It's craziness to us. So that being as it is, every time, which is almost every day now, literally weekly, daily, we have mass shootings in our country. We become totally anesthetized to it. We, it's just totally business as usual. And then every time a big shooting happens... You have this outcry, and then you have the same just back and forth. We need gun control, and then the other party saying, we need prayer. And, and we need, you know, the NRA's buying these votes. 
do you have you you were friends with these some of these people who are still in power in Congress? You were friends with some of these people who are in, on the Supreme Court. So you're, I mean, there's no better insider perspective than you, Rob. Do you have any hope that any meaningful gun control regulation is going to be put forth and signed into law in this country in the next decade? Uh, you know, I, I never want to give up any kind of hope. And, you know, there are often so many beautiful things that surprise us and I want to hold out for that. I will say there's no evidence that there will be any meaningful gun policy, not even sensible conversation on a on a government level about it until there's a revolutionary, pardon the pun, a radical shift in uh, the kinds of people elected to uh, the national legislature of the House and the Senate. I think about the two Justins of Tennessee, these two, you know, mm -hmm. uh, amazing souls um, yep. Yep. who, you know, the Tennessee legislature attempted to eject uh, because of their, uh, you know, cry for reasonable gun policy in their state and after a mass shooting yeah yeah after the mass shootings exactly um and uh i'm hoping both of them come to congress someday uh in the not too distant future uh there's been some really good people elected uh you know just even in the last election so could it hit a tipping point in the next 10 years? Yes, there's a possibility of that. But I think it will require a prophetic uh, force in, in, our, in our society, and it will come as much, I hope, uh, from the church as it has from young people. But it's going to take something tectonic uh, to change that. Hmm. And last question for me about gun control stuff: um, Are are you? Does that pessimism? Because I share the pessimism. I mean, any thinking person who's watching what's happening in Washington in our national conversation can can has right to be pessimistic about the the current situation of that conversation. Is that pessimism more because of the money that the NRA throws around? DC, or is it because of the ideological stronghold within conservatives about their love for guns and you know whatever? I think it's both. One feeds the other. It's a hmm. monstrous uh, symbiotic relationship. Uh, the NRA not only raises an enormous amount of money, they are very, very good at organizing at least on the state and primary levels. They're not so great. In fact, they, they really fail on the national campaigns, but on the, the local, the state, and uh, the primaries, they are very, very good at what they do. And they create an illusion. They, they create fear. And, and I go into this in the film. You, you see this over and over again. We return to the theme of 
fear as a controlling force, which I think, again, is is contradictory to the gospel, to the model, the ministry, uh, the message of Jesus Christ. Uh, but the NRA uses fear magnificently, exquisitely, both mm -hmm. to put uh, national lawmakers in fear, uh, that they're going to be turned out of of you know their their offices in the next election. They use fear to control their own constituents and their own donors by telling them you know the next mm -hmm. time you go fill up at the gas station you're going to be uh, carjacked probably by a person with dark skin and you better be armed and ready. And of course that fuels the manufacturers that make these guns and export them uh, to other countries uh, and they make a big windfall of money and they reward the NRA with with that money and they reward law uh, candidates with their money. So it all kind of feeds itself. It's a it, it's a grotesque and deadly incestuous uh, predatory uh, symbiosis that goes on. Yeah. So what I want to do is just give you a few sound bites that are super common that I've heard, heard a lot of them in that documentary about guns and just get your kind of off the cuff reaction. What do you think is a reasonable response to this sort of thing? Okay. These are all things you've heard many times before. So the first one is very well known. The only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. What's your response to that? If your vision is people shooting at each other over each other's heads and killing children uh, who get in the way. If that's the world you want, you know, that's what you'll have. Yeah. Number two, guns don't kill people, people kill people. Take the gun out of a person's hand. If you have somebody who's in a maniacal rage, which would you rather hand them, a baseball bat or a semi-automatic weapon with an extended magazine full of bullets? Number three, we have a right and a duty to protect our families and the vulnerable. You're far more likely statistically to injure or kill a family member with a firearm in the home than you ever will be protecting them. Number four, I don't trust the government to protect me. I've got to do it myself. The government is of the people, for the people, by the people. You send the people into government. Nobody else does. Lastly, the people in Washington want to take away our guns. I was in Washington for 35 years. I never heard that, never saw that. There was zero indication of it. Those are the fundraisers mainly who come up with those lines because they ring the bell every time and they get you to send in your 10 25 and $50. Yeah. I appreciate you going through that Thank exercise you. with yeah. me because I think it highlights what you're just talking about, which is sowing seeds of fear that are rooted in nothing deeper than that. Like all of these sound bites are super easy to dismantle with a moment's thought. And yet they seem, including amongst your friends who you're speaking with in that video, including amongst my family members and friends who I've spoken with it about, they seem like deep seated convictions when they're spoken. Um, and it's almost, and often spoken by, intelligent people who would be able to think more critically than that in other contexts. And yet it's like a cloud comes over them when this issue is brought up and the soundbite is all they have. And if you question it, it's just 
flight or fight and mm. or, or fright <laughs> in this case, which is super ironic because one of the people in that scene accused you of being afraid, which just seemed like so much projection to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I tell some of the folks who repeat those things to me, you know, first of all, I'm, you know, I'm about to turn 65. Uh, I've lived in, uh, you know, rural, suburban, very urban settings. I spent the formative years of my uh, ministry experience living with 15 recovering heroin addicts in a home uh, in what most people would describe as the ghetto. Uh, I've been to 44 countries, some of them at war. I've never felt ever the need to strap a lethal weapon on my body to survive. Uh, why do you feel that way? You know, uh, some of these people mm-hmm. don't leave their communities. They they never leave what is essentially their neighborhood, and yet they're terribly afraid. And 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 this is what I tell them, with great pain, with with. Uh, there's no other way to describe it. With shame, I carry shame and regret and pain about this. But for 25 years, I sat with fundraisers who sent out millions of pieces of communication for me, for my organization, billions for all the national Christian organizations that they were contracted with and made hundreds of millions of dollars in profit from. And I would sit at a table and they would say things like this to me. Listen, I need, you know what I need from you? I need fear and I need anger. The madder I make your people, the more terrified I make them, the bigger the the donation they're going to make to your organization. You understand that? You give me a little fear and I'll raise a little money for you. You give me a lot of fear Hmm. and I'll raise a bundle of money for you. I had one guy who said to me, you give me a little you know, you make people a little upset, a little angry, I'll raise $100,000 for you. You make them mad as hell, and I'll raise a million dollars for you. Now, that goes on every day in the boardrooms of some of the biggest Christian organizations in this country, constantly, because they know the magic. They know what loosens people's hold on their money. And they create a fantasy, an imaginary world, where first, if you'll send me your $50, I'll make the world safe ultimately, not immediately, but someday I'll make it safe for your grandchild. Do we have time for me to tell you a little more of a story about this? Okay. Uh, Yes, (laughs) please. So in one of those sit-downs, one of my big fundraisers said, I want you to think of Helen. Helen lives on a rural route in Kansas. Her nearest neighbor is three miles away. She's a widow. She hasn't seen her kids or her grandkids in a year. And she lives in terror that the world her grandchildren are going to inherit will be a country where they can't they they can't live their lives without looking over their necks because somebody's going to get them. The biggest event in that woman's life 
is when she reads your letter or your email. And I want you to tell her that the world is as bad as she imagines it, but if she will get behind you and your organization, you can finally change that for her grandchild, but not until she sends her next hundred dollars. That was a real conversation I had. That I heard that, and I resisted it at first. But over the years, I, I got it. I understood this is how you do it. And I shamefully acquiesced to it. And that company sent out three million letters a year for my organization. Hmm. There were three million Helens who got those letters. And those companies that live off these national organizations, sometimes the ratio is eight to, to, to two. For every $10 they raise, they keep eight of it and they make themselves extremely wealthy. And $2 goes to the organization they're raising the money for. It is an enormous ethical crisis in our country. And it's feeding all of this. It's feeding this catastrophe. So it's something we have to expose, lay it out, help people to see that very sadly they're being played for fools in the most dangerously corruptive way. And this is not talking about our politicians or our corrupt government. This is talking about the evangelical church, movers and shakers, not the not the crazy ones in the corner. These are prominent front and center evangelicals creating a Ponzi scheme to take money, to have power, and using fear and manipulation in order, in order to do it. I dare you to listen to what Rob's saying and think, oh, evangelicalism isn't as bad as I thought it was. It's just kind of the, those are the outliers. We're talking about the power brokers with an evangelicalism. This is how they fund their, their whole world. I, I want, we're going to need to take a bath after this. But, um, <laughs> yeah. Did you ever get a straight answer to the question, how can you be pro-life and also so pro-gun? No, no. You know, th there are certain things that the movement I was a part of for so long refuses to answer or to look at critically. And that's a problem in evangelical culture, period. Um, and I speak only about evangelicals because that's my area of expertise. It's where I've spent my entire adult life. It's where I've been trained. It's where I've served. It's the people I know. So, you know, one of the biggest problems, I think, within e the evangelical subculture is our lack of critical thinking. We don't investigate. We don't interrogate. We don't ask the hard questions. And we most certainly don't answer those hard questions. Yeah. So this is my last question. It's a perfect segue. My favorite line from the film was when you said simple answers can be like heroin in your veins. Can you expand on that? Yeah. Well, you know, it gives you momentary euphoria. You feel like that was a good thing. You know, that's a great feeling. God said it. I believe it. And that's good enough for me. Doesn't that sound great? 
makes me feel good <laughs> if I say to a woman in crisis pregnancy, you don't need to kill your child. There's somebody out there who wants your child, who will love your child, who will love you and take care of you. That feels really good in the moment. It makes me feel justified. It makes me feel that I'm doing God's work, that I'm I'm doing the right thing. I'm good here. I'm right. I'm okay. I'm I'm I've got it all together. I feel good. But it's really not doing any good at all. And in fact, it's it's hurting others. It's it's injuring myself because I'm detached from reality. And it's hurting others because I'm denying them the same privileges I enjoy. So it's like an addiction. It's like a chemical addiction. It feels great. It gives momentary relief. But over the course of time, it does great and continuous harm. Rob, we've heard words come out of your mouth about your past of words like regret, shame, uh, embarrassed, you know, horrified. And I would just want to tell you, Rob, genuinely, um, you are an inspiration. You give me profound sense of hope that people in high places with millions of dollars at their disposal and the most powerful people at their beck and call can change. That human beings who have dedicated their life to something can actually look at and say, I think I've gotten this all wrong and they can transform. That, to me, is possibly the most beautiful thing a human being can do. So I want to just give you just so much credit and to say you're an inspiration for so many of us, to say truth is there, beauty is there, goodness is there, and when you find it, when you're confronted by it, that's the moment when when the true human comes out. So thank you for your work, Rob. Again, I'm inspired by you, and I really, really am grateful for your voice. very humbling, Randy. Thank you. I would love to talk to you on a separate occasion just about Bonhoeffer because I had so many questions about him and we didn't get yep. to any of them. Yep. So if you want to speak to us again in the future, let's well, do that. Cheryl always kicks me under the table when I talk about Bonhoeffer too much because she says, honey, there are others. That's not a thing for us. <laughs> Literally half our podcast is philosophy, oh, so we can go hard if you I'd want to. I'd love to do that. I'd love <laughs> to do that with you guys. <laughs> We and I, I don't think he gets enough respect as a philosopher, and so I would love to talk to somebody who knows a lot more about his thought. Absolutely. Rob, I was excited to talk to you, and it didn't disappoint. Thank you so much for your time to staying up late with us. It was really, really pl- no, pleasure to talk to you. I thoroughly enjoyed being with you guys, so uh, bless all the, the good work that you're doing. Well, that's it for this episode of A Pastor and a Philosopher Walk Into a Bar. We hope you're enjoying the show as much as we are. Help us continue to create compelling content and reach a wider audience by supporting us at patreon.com forward slash a pastor and a philosopher, where you can get bonus content, extra perks, and a general feeling of being a good person. Also, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and Spotify. These help new people discover the show, and we may even read your review in a future episode, if it's good enough. If anything you said really pissed you off, or if you just have a question you'd like us to answer, or if you'd just like to send us booze, send us an email at pastorandphilosopher at gmail.com. 
Catch all of our hot takes on Twitter at, at PPWB Podcast, at Randy Nye, and at Robert K. Whitaker. And find transcripts and links to all of our episodes at pastorandphilosopher.buzzsprout.com. See you next time. Cheers. Cheers.